Good morning, Rabbi. So, I'd like to thank uh, everybody for joining us this morning. Today, we're going to explore a different line of thinking. We're going to be looking at a really a different way of, of appreciating um, appreciating Torah this morning, something which we don't usually do. Um, I want to start off by thanking um, the Silversteins and the Weinbergs who are sponsoring for the yard site, which will be actually tomorrow for Yisrael. It's today. It's today. Yisrael Mordechai Ben David. Ze- ben Dov Zev, I apologize. Um, and we will, uh, we are going to be learning. This is this is um, Ben Joseph Emily Silverstein, Yael, Paul, um, Yossi, Esti. Everybody, th- I'm thinking about um, about Irms. The Shemesh should have an alias neshama and a continued continued alias neshama as uh, as his profound impact continues. We are also there's also a. Uh, there is also an anonymous sponsor today um, who is sponsoring in honor of um, Chaya and Josh Glickman's latest grandson, who met Hashem, who will enter the very social Avram Avinu B'Yitzhoi this coming Wednesday. Chaya is almost here. Chaya's seat is right over here. And so we have to tell her that it was, it was sponsored um, for that very special upcoming Simcha. And of course, we are also in the Shloshim of Shenya Bas Moshe, Dr. Yeager's mother. Um, Oleh Shalom, who who's, um, this month's Shirim are sponsored for. Let us learn together. We, what we're going to do is we're going to follow a very unusual way of thinking, and I'd like to share with you an idea I, I learned or I heard about 10 years ago when I was in Chicago. And at the time, I, there was a Shabbos where Rabbi Foreman came out to, uh, to Chicago, and he, he developed on a Friday night in somebody's living room this, this, this what I think is really a, a remarkable idea. I like, I like to unpack it together um, as we approach Purim. I think it's a very beautiful idea. Let's just, just, just to start off with the, the idea and the methodology right now, to appreciate what's really going on. People say the following. You know, how is it possible? There's a basic question that's at stake. Is that Tanakh, our Torah Nevi'im and Ksuvim, have a finite amount of words. Um, right, there's a certain amount of ink which is used to, to write down those words. But we do believe, as a tenet of our faith, that it has an infinite amount of meaning, meaning to say it wasn't for one time, for one place, for one era. There's, there's multiple levels of meaning, not just multiple, but there's an infinite amount of depth. But how can a finite document, how can a finite amount of words have an infinite amount of meaning? Basic question. It's a basic question that we, that we need to deal with. So there's, there's numerous levels of, of expl- explanation. We understand that throughout history, different levels are seen and appreciated depending on the perspective of the Mepharshim as it goes through, as you go through. And again, layer after layer is developed. But how, technically speaking, does a finite amount of space have an infinite amount of depth? That's the, that's the, the question. So one of the answers to that is a word which, is call, which we, we call today intertextuality. Intertextuality. Intertextuality is a methodology which, although Chazal didn't call it that, Chazal clearly were aware of it, as we'll see a few examples in just a, in just a moment, where clearly the text is relating, is expanding itself with itself. Which means to say that, let's say when you look at um, a small encapsulated parasha, uh, um, you know, we look at the Migdal Bavel, the beginning of Perik Yud Aleph and Sefer Bereshis, it's, it's a sum total of those nine psukim which encapsulate it, but... So how do you understand what it means? Well, the answer is, is if you look at the words, the words and the themes are expanding itself via other places in the Torah that, are, that it's linked to. So like the, the, perhaps the way to think about it is, and I think this is a very apt example, is that when the Internet was being developed as a consumer tool, it was a military tool for many years before that, but as the Internet was being developed as a consumer tool, one of the descriptions that, that was given, Al Gore had was, he says, we're making way for information highway. Right? So he said that the information highway is going to be unveiled. And that's a little bit of an incorrect description of the Internet because the Internet is much more profound than, in, in a, than a highway of information. The Internet really is actually, the better way of describing it is a web. If you think about this, that no information belongs in one place. When you go to a, a, um, a website, when you start looking at link, uh, hyperlinks that take you to other places, that information isn't stored in one place. The brilliance of the internet is the interconnectedness of all that information. So when I wanted to work out how to remove a stain, right, a wine stain on a garment, and I'm looking over, right, I'm trying to work out, what I'm doing is I'm finding information which is being stored in servers all around the world, people who are renting that space through the, through the software, whatever hosting software that they're using, 
And right now in my, in my dining room, with my laptop, I am able now to access multi-dimensions of information stored all around the world from Korea to Alaska, and I'm able to bring that into this, my, my, my LCD and be able to see that information. There's an interconnectedness of that information. Tanakh was doing this long before the internet was invented. And he has an example of, of, of one example of how it works. And I'd like to just preface this by the fact that, unfortunately, sometimes we're a little bit um, tainted because we hear amateurs who do this. And when amateurs do this, it really empties the value of this. That's why we need to hear the to listen to the professionals. So he has, he has, he has an example of, of, of a very profound insight into, into the Megillah, very profound insight into the way that we look at things. So it starts off well with a very simple no, um, in no, notion, a very simple indication. Dr. Huberfeld mentioned this to me yesterday. And that is, is that when the Megillus uh, talks about the story that um, Haman is now coming uh, during the night, the king is now is, 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 is having a difficult night to sleep, and Haman is coming. And by the way, I always have this visceral reaction that we need to clap for Haman, but we're not at the Megillah yet, so we can all just get through this, this section. This, this peric is in, uh, very intense with the amount of clappings that we have. So Haman's entering the courtyard of the king, and he has this whole proposition. He thinks that he, that, that the, what, 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 uh, what, he, he wants to go and hang Mordechai. In the meantime, the king has a different idea. He's trying to reward a, uh, the individual who saved his life with Big Son and, Ter and Teresh. So as this unfolds, we hear a very interesting story. And... Uh, and he asks someone, you know, what would you say, you know, my top advisor, what would you say I should do to a person who wants to, who saved the king? And Haman, in his own contrived thought, thought process, thinks, who would the king want to honor more than me? He's stuck in his, own, in his own narcissistic bubble. And he says, what you should do is you get the horse of the king and you put the man on the, on the horse and you call out in front of him, so, so she should do to the man the king wants to honor. Happens to be that there is only one other time in all of Tanakh that that phrase um, appears. Kacha yeh ish only appears one other time in Tanakh with the exact same trope. And that is, is in a section which, which is actually related to us, which is in the section of Yibum, which is in um, Devarim Perak Chofhe, the 25th chapter of the book of Devarim, where it is described, and I put both, uh, both of the, the sections back to back in the notes today. But you'll see um, in, in uh, Devarim Perak Chofhe, Pasuk Choches, it says, I apologize. It's actually at the top of the next page. Yeah, so let's, let's read the entire passage. It says, This is the lady who is not being married by her brother-in-law. She will take the shoe off his foot. She will spit towards him. She will say, This is what will be done to the man who will not build the, brother, the home of his deceased brother. And that's what she says. It ha it's obviously interesting to us that this section in Yibum appears two paragraphs before Timcha Zecher Amolek. That just should be worthwhile noting as well. It's the same peric in Tanakh where this all appears. So you say, okay, well, that, that's interesting. But after all, maybe there's only a certain amount of phrases in the arsenal necessary to be able to describe such a thing. So you say, this is the, the terminology used for heralding. Okay, so it happens to be. So you see, one connection is not sufficient. What happens is it's almost like you know, you're discovering a, 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 a singularity. So the question is, is, can we dust around very carefully with our, with our little brushes to uncover any more parts of this, of this fossil? Can we see anything else that exists here which would indicate this is not random or happenstance? And the truth is, yes, we can. In fact, there's a, there's a few indications of this. One indication is that if we look at the word chafetz, the word desire, is an interesting word to, to focus on for a moment. Take a look at the word chafet, desire. Look at, look at uh, in the Megillah where it first appears, where the story appears. And you'll see that the word chafet is actually very interesting. Yeah, it, it, it comes across many, many times. So it's, you know, And he says, It goes on further again. Again, there are no less than five mentionings of the word chafet, to want, in this section, this small section of this interaction between the king and Haman at late at night. When you go to the section of Yibam, once again, that also seems to be a word which appears numerous times. appears no less than two times here. This is now about where the brother is saying, I don't want to marry my brother-in-law, my, my sister-in-law. My sister the, the terminology of want is the same as used in the Megillah. Let's take another, 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 level, before, uh, another level. It's interesting that the phrase... 
of describing the person who's getting honored in the Megillah is the Karu Lefonov. They will call in front of the person who's going to be led on the horse of the king. In this case, in the case of Chalitza, it's the opposite. It is the Yarka Lefonov. She will spit in front of him. Not the Karu Lefonov, but the Yarka Lefonov. Now, the word Yarka to spit should be really standing out to us. Why should the word Yarak be standing out? Because Yarak actually is the same permutation as the word Yakar. Isn't that interesting? Yarak and Yakar are the actually, if you flip the last two letters, it's the same word, but the one is a denigration and the one is an elevation. Isn't that interesting? So, when it comes to the person who doesn't want to build the house of their brother, the Yarakobifonov, she will spit in the direction of such an individual who is not willing to take responsibility. When it comes to the person that Chahaman believes is worthy of honor, the Karul of the Fonov, because Who's he going to do? Chafetz bikoroi. Lasos yakor. Chafetz bikoroi. All the idea over here is the currency is kovo. The currency is honor. He believes he's deserving of honor. Ironically speaking, it's almost like chalitz is being done to him, so to speak, right? He is being, so to speak, undressed, right? The clothing which he thought he deserved is being taken off of him. Um, as, as an example, these are a few of the, connect, the textual connections. But it's also interesting that it's, it's not as if, uh, not as if we, we should miss the greater picture as well in the Chazal side of things. As an example, there is a measure which says the following fascinating story. It says that there's a debate as to when the, when the Megillah actually happened in history. When is Achashverosh in the line of kings? But this Midrash is, is clear that Koresh, Cyrus, comes beforehand, so which means to say the beginning of the building of the Basim English has already taken place, and it was stopped. The reason why the Basim English was being stopped was for a simple reason, is that the nation of Israel went, the, 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 the Jews went back to the land of Judea. They started building the Basim English, and their neighbors, who were the Samaritans then, who were a group of locals who'd been imported by the Syrians and the Babylonians and were living there then, said, look, we should do this with you. We'll make, we'll make it a cosmopolitan temple. And the Jews said, thank you, but no thank you. We'll make our own temple to our own God. And because of that, they got upset, and they went and they started sending letters to the Persia saying, these Jews, they have, they have dual loyalties. Some things just don't change in history, right? Um, and so they start, they, they, and they start creating problems. So the Medrash actually comments that the representative of the Jews was a man by the name of Mordechai, and the representative of the, the Samaritans was a man by the name of Haman. It's interesting that the Medrash is sort of taking in these two, the protagonist and the antagonist, and importing them to an earlier story. And it describes that at this point in time, they're on their way, they're making the journey from Israel or Judea northwards to Shushan to represent their cases in front of the international court at this point in time of Persia. And, uh, and uh, along the way, um, Haman consumes all his food much faster than Mordechai, who is much more reticent and is more careful about the way he consumes his food along the way. Haman is now starving, and he turns to Mordechai. This is all a Medrash. And the Medrash says, he says, please give me food. And Mordechai says, no, sorry, you didn't plan well enough. And, uh, and ultimately, he make a deal. And the deal is, is he writes on the bottom of the shoe of Mordechai that I will sell myself as a slave to you, if you give me the food. Fascinating, he agrees. And because of that, the Medrash says, there was always this latent anger, this latent resentment in the fact that he was beholden to Mordechai. Now, whatever the Medrash means, whether it means that this was a literal experience that had occurred, or whether this was a, or this is a metaphoric description of interaction, what is fascinating is the methodology of communication that this symbol of servitude of Haman is to be found in the shoe. Now, why should that be relevant to us? Because the whole process of the Mr. Yibum is what's called Chalitza, where she takes off the shoe of the person who should have married her. Right now, the Medrash is clearly coming into the same ideology over here, that there's something to do with this process of Chalitza, which is happening. Something about Haman. Haman has his shoe removed. Haman is the person who believes he's fitting for Yakar, but instead he's getting Yerika. He's getting the spitting. He's the man of but really the king is There's something going on over here. There has to be something big, and the question is, is can we make head or tail of it, or is this just a bunch of, um, of parallels which, uh, which are random, which is hard to imagine are. So what we're going to do is we're going to just put that on the side, we're going to hold that, hold that off right now, and let's try to get, have a moment to come back to this. So let's, let's jump straight into the story of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, 
of Esther itself. And we're going to notice a very fascinating interaction that, that Esther has. We know that Esther saves the day. But truth be told, it wasn't so simple. Esther has a number of feasts, and she makes a number of pleas. In the first, uh, at the first point, when we believe, you know, at this point in time, we believe the Megillah is over, when she makes her first plea, it really isn't over. Here's, here's the first time that Esther makes her request in front of the king, and, and we're going to just notice a few interesting things that occur in this. So at this point in time, um, this is when Haman, she makes her accusation um, against Haman, or um, she says the following. In Perek Zion, Vatan Esther Amalka Batomer. She says this in Source 3. Imatsasichain Beinea Beinecha Melech, Vimala Melech Tov, Tinosain Lishaelos Ibn Ashib Shaelos Siva Mivakoshosi. Please give me my, my soul, my nation, which is connected to me in my, in my request. At this point in time, if you were Esther and you wanted a request for the rescinding of the decree, which was the genocide of your people, what words would you be thinking of? What would be the attack that you would be taking to, to appease this king? What, 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 what kind of argument would you expect from her mouth? It's all sounding good right now. What, what, would, she be, what would she be requesting? So, so it, it sounds like you know, the, the easiest way to play this is what's her greatest asset, essentially, when, when speaking to the king? What's, what's, what's her greatest leverage she has over the king? The fact is the king likes her. Right? The king likes her. And despite all the other girls in Shushan town, as the song goes, Right? She, she's the one who the king has chosen. So what should she be doing? She should be playing the one card that she has in her favor, which is? She, she essentially should say, damsel in distress, right? I'm your wife. I'm suffering. I'm, I'm a victim. I'm, in fact, the victim of the same genocide. You should stop me and save me and my people. That's what she should be saying, right? That's her greatest leverage she has on the king at this point in time. But then listen to the word she says. And this is where just you sort of like the, the air is sucked out of the room. She says, you know what, because he has the reason. Because we've been sold to be destroyed. Look, if we've been sold as slaves, then I would have kept quiet. I wouldn't be wasting your time, O king, because I know you've got many important foreign state affairs to be dealing with. But it wasn't that we were just sold. It was that we were sold to be killed or slated for killing. Now, so if you do the calculation... The fact that we were sold wouldn't be enough to inter in interrupt your Im important proceedings today. But because we were sold to be killed, therefore, even though it's, to, uh, it's an inconvenience for you to have to deal with this, with this local dispute, but nonetheless, uh, I'm, I have to make my case. But if it wasn't this, if we were just going into slavery, I could have managed to, to keep quiet. It's like, Esther, there's a little too many details here. Right? <laughs> right? At this point in time, you can imagine the king's had a little bit to drink already. He is, you know, he's, he's, not, he's not really in his, at his finest accounting hour. And he's, 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 I'm not, can you just spell out what it is that you want here? You know, why, why is it that Esther is making things overly complicated in her communication? Right now is, is a critical moment. This is, this is a moment of glory. This is a moment to save the nation of Israel. Be explicit, Esther. And in fact, it doesn't work, right? At this point in time, although Haman is eradicated, it's not at this point in time, the decree still remains intact which is why she has to have a second go at it the next Perak, which is why um, later on in the Perak Ches, we have her again. She comes to the king, and here's what she says. This is the second request she makes. I'm good in your eyes. This is sounding very good right now, right? Please rescind, send Svarim to rescind the decree sent by Haman the Hamdasa. How can I see the evil that's going to befall my people? How can the, the destruction of my birthplace be seen? Fantastic. Right? This is S is playing straight into it. This is exactly the argument she should have made. She makes the argument of what happens. And, and this, this argument actually... Technically speaking, he can't rescind a, a decree, but he does send the svarim she requests, and he sends the she send, he sends the svarim out. This is a we'll call it a second decree, which over overarches the first decree, and ultimately she ends up saving the nation of Israel because of this request. This is where the real magic happens. I know that it's at this point, so a lot of a lot of people think you know that the magic happened when Haman was killed. Haman was killed. The decrees are still in, in action until Perekhes, when she's able to get from the king that the, the, that he is able to send out these second set of svarim. Complication as to why he can't rescind it. Or if there's two decrees, who you're going to, which one you're going to listen to. There's 
not, not for now as to what's really going on. But here you have two, two requests that Esther makes of the king. The first one, less of a, of a successful one. The second one, a much more successful one. And the fascinating thing is, is that, again, if we're going to look at the intertextuality idea over here, you will notice something fascinating. And that is, is that Esther is actually borrowing the words of somebody else in Tanakh. Esther here in her second and successful request is borrowing the words of somebody else in Tanakh. And we have to understand this. That means to say, does that mean to say that she specifically said this in Hebrew? Or is this that, that Tanakh is reframing her conversation in the way as to use the, way, the words of somebody else? Who was that other person that she was actually using? Who was she quoting? She is quoting the words of Yehuda much earlier on at the end of Parshas Vayigash. What happens is, is in, per- in Vayigash, Perak, um, Veracious Perak Memdalad, we're told that, you, that Yehuda says, remember at this point in time, Yehuda has given the guarantee to his father that I'm not going to ever come home empty-handed of Binyamin, of my brother Binyamin. And this is what he says, when and now at this point in time, I mean, when he is, at the end of, sorry, Parashas Mikes, when he's talking to, I mean, to, the, to the, the, the agent or the viceroy, he says the following, he says, how can I return? How is it that I'm going to be able to return to my father? In source 5, he says, Perek Memdalad Posag Lamadalad, Ki Eich Ele Olavi. How can I possibly return to my father? Vanar eneni enenu iti, and the son, and the boy, the lad is not with him. Pen ere vera asher yimsa esavi. Is that fascinating? That phrase, pen ere vera, lest I see the evil asher yimsa esavi, that my father will see. How can I leave my father bereft in such a way? Isn't it fascinating? Is that almost identical to what Esther was just saying a moment ago? How is it that I'm able to see the, the evil which will befall? The evil which will befall my nation. Meaning, if I don't do something, says Esther, what's going to happen? Is not my father now, but replace the word avi with ami. Now instead, instead of being my father is going to suffer terrible, terrible consequences, my nation is going to suffer terrible consequences. I can't keep quiet and not put myself in front of the train that's going to be, um, that's going to be affecting my people. In the same way that you would have said on the microcosm level, how can I watch my father suffer terribly if I don't do something to put myself in front of this train, the external force over here, which is going to be impacting the foreign nation, which is going to be impacting my brother my, my, from, the, from the other side of the family. So it's fascinating. So Esther seems to be quoting the similar terminology or argumentation of Yehuda, um, expanding it from the microcosm to the macrocosm of the nation. But truth be told, that's not the only time that she's quoting Yehuda. In fact, if you look at the first and failed request of Esther to save her nation, that whole accounting detail over there, it's fascinating that the word she used is, If we've been sold, Nim Karnu, that word, Nim Karnu, we've been sold. Those letters in Tanakh also only appear one other time in Tanakh. Those letters without the same vowelization only appear one other time in Tanakh. Nun, Mem, Chof, Resh, Nun, Vov. That permutation only appears one other time in Tanakh, and that is, you got it, Yehuda again. But this time it's not Yehuda at the end of Mikates going into Vayigash. Now it really actually is is when Yehuda is at the point where the, uh, Yosef is about to be sold. Yosef is coming down from Shechem. Yosef is coming down to Shechem. He's being sent by, to, by his fa- father, Me'emek Chevron, and he's going down and he's looking for his brothers. As his brothers see him on the horizon, there's now this, uh, there's, there's this terrible attrition which is building, and two of the brothers say, Shimon and Levi say to each other, that let's go kill him. At which point in time, there is uh, there, there's the discussion. Reuven says... Reuven says, no, let's not sell him, we'll, we'll put him into, into the pits. And then Reuven's plan is to come back. But in between, unbeknownst to Reuven, Yehuda makes another suggestion. And here's the suggestion that, that Yehuda makes um, in source 6. Yehuda says to his brothers, What's the point of killing him and covering his brothers? There's a word. Let us sell him. Same, same letters. Different vowelization. Instead of nimkarnu, it's nimkarenu. Same word, just differently vowelized. To sell him to the Yishmaelim. By the way, you'll notice the same, the same logic over here. Slavery versus killing. Do you know what S is doing? Slavery versus killing. If it was just slavery, it would be all right. I would keep quiet. If it was killing, now I'm going to just speak up. He says, let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery. So using the same word, nimkarenu is the word which she ultimately, in the permutation later on, is saying, Nimkarnu, we were sold. 
right? So clearly over here, there's something fascinating going on. Esther, in both the requests to the king, first failed request is quoting Yehuda at the beginning of the story. Second and more successful request is quoting Yehuda at the end of the story. Now, why? Why would Tanakh frame it this way? Why would Tanakh give us these clues, these echoes of the past? What is Tanakh trying to tell us about what's going on in Esther's mind by framing it within the context of the Bereshia saga? That's the question that should be on, on, on our hands. So the, re- the, the truth is, is it takes us back to one last critical moment in the episode. It, what we're seeing over here, just, just uh, of course, is that Bereshia's isn't just the nice time where we get to spend time with our kids in kindergarten explaining nice stories. Right, Bereshit slowly, uh, the more we study, it becomes the framework and the model of understanding the rest of Jewish history in many ways. Here is an example of where one, uh, one expression of that model is expressing itself later on on a national scale. There's one episode which occurs which helps us understand all of this. And that is the episode where, uh, where we have, the episode where we have a, uh, um, a, a very sad incident in which in Parshas Vayishlach we see that... Uh, that um, Dina goes out and she is abducted and raped by the uh, by by Shechem ben Chamor, and uh, and we have this terrible incident where uh, where Yaakov Inu now has to deal with this. The brothers deal with this, and they deal with this very violently, um, as as a repercussion for this uh, this incident. What is interesting about this incident is uh, is is the following: is that Rashi comments that where did that incident occur? Where did the rape of Dina actually occur? Occurred naturally by the namesake, which is by the city of Shechem. And Rashi comments in, in, in the tenth source, he says the following thing. He says, He came to Shechem. That was a bad place. Shechem has always been a rough place. Why? That's where the Shvatim made a mistake. They, 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 they did a, an evil action. What was that? They sold Yosef. There, Dina was raped. Sham Malchus David. That's where the kingdom of David split up. So let's think about those three incidents for a moment. There's three incidents that Rashi is indicating that Shechem is, is going to be have this aura about it of negativity. One is that the Kilkulashvatim, which means that Yosef was coming down to Shechem, which is when he was. Um, he went to Dotan first, and then he then he was resent to Shechem. And when he came to Shechem, that's when he was uh, he was sold. So that's the first episode. The last episode was the splitting of the kingdom. Now those items, those ideas are actually very parallel to each other because when the kingdom split, who was in charge prior to the split was a man by the name of, the king by the name of? Rechavam ben Shlomo. The king, the, the divinic dynasty was on the throne. Rechavam, he made a number of political mistakes. He made a number of economic decisions that were, that were incorrect, as Tanakh is clear about in Sefer Melachim. And so therefore there was a political dissident by the name of Yeravam ben Nevat, and Yeravim ben Nevat, at the, at the beginning, divinely sanctioned, goes and splits off the king. And where does he do this? He finds a seat of power. His economic dis, uh, dissidence is found in, the, in Shechem, and that's where he splits the kingdom. What's interesting is that those events actually are parallel to each other in the sense that where, which tribe does Yeravim ben Nevat come from? He comes from Ephraim, right? And ultimately, the northern kingdom, which he splits off, the major kingdom of Israel, is going to always be called in the later prophets as Ephraim. So it's fascinating. You have now the, the, the division between Ephraim and Yehuda. Ephraim and Yehuda are the two different parts of the kingdom. Ephraim, of course, is the scion of which side of the family? The, the, the children of Leah, of Yosef, essentially. Uh, the, the, sorry, of Rachel. Whereas Yehuda is the king of Benois Leah. We have the, the sort of the beginning of it is in the, the personal drama in Parshas Vayeshev is where Yosef is sold by the brothers. So one side of the family is selling the other side of the family. But later on, on the national scale, we have the two sides of the family splitting away from each other, where Yehud is left in the south, and we have, we have the ten tribes with the, headed by Ephraim in the north. That same splitting. Which means to say, what about the middle incidents? Shom Inues Dina, the rape of Dina, that doesn't seem to have, be a family struggle, does it? That seems to be an external problem interrupting the family, right? There seems to be an external predator on the outside who's impacting the family, which is perhaps true, but it does impact the actual family dynamics itself. And here's how. <clears throat> here's how. When it comes, when the information is presented to Yaakov Vino in the first, in the first instance, by the way, do you, do you realize how far we've gone so far? Just to, see, just to make sure that we've not lost any of the stops along the way. We started with the Chalitza, 
Right, we put that on the side, the connection between Chalitza and the, and the Megillah. We moved into the two, the, two, the two requests of Esther, the failed attempt and the successful attempt, and we saw that they were borrowing from the terms of Yehuda at the beginning and the end of the story. Then now we're moving into the final last module over here, which is trying to understand how the sale of Dina is related to the splitting of the kingdom, whether it be personally or nationally. Why is this incident related to those two, to put those two put together? And the answer is very simple. So when the brothers hear about the story, well, when Yaakov hears about the story, so Shechem and Chamor come on and they come along and they say, by the way, we really like your daughter. That's an euphemism. Um, and so they say, we'd like to marry her. We'd like to bring her into the family. And so at this point in time, this is what happens in source eight, um, sorry, in source nine. Yaakov hears of this terrible incident. And his sons were in the field. Yaakov kept quiet until they returned. So he didn't act immediately until they came. That's a very important word. He keeps quiet until they come. At the end of the episode, they take the matters into their own hands. They make this deal. We're going to do this thing. It's called a circumcision. Not so bad. And they all do it. And when, it, when, it's, when it's at its worst on the third day, that's when they slaughter the entire city. At which time, Yaakov reprimands his sons. And he says, how could you do this? You, so, you know, you're going to put us at terrible risk from the surrounding nations. And the response of the brothers is, is our sister going to be treated in such a terrible, horrific way? Now, there's a sad truth to this in the sense that what are they really saying? They're not just saying that we stand up for our sister. But what they're saying is, is wait a second. You hear the story. You hear the news about the affliction of the daughter of Leah. Our sister, says Shimon and Levi. And what were you? You were quiet. What happens, is, what happens if it was this, the daughter of Rachel, your favorite wife? Would you have been as quiet then if it was on that side of the family? There's an accusation which is found in their words. Achoseinu meaning to say, our sister, not our half-sister. Now, if you think about that, that fits directly into the same, the same logic that Rashi was saying. The Shvatim selling Yosef was an intra-family conflict. The splitting of the kingdom was an intra-family conflict. Is the rape of Dina an intra-family conflict? The answer is yes. It also brought about this terrible, this terrible anger, this resentment. Because why? Yaakov was quiet. Now we have a little bit of the tools to come back to the Megillah for a second. Because in the Megillah, we now meet a new term. The term is called Yehudi, which we use today all the time. That's where the word Jew comes from. But that was not what people were called up till then. Yehudim, today, Yehudi, the, you know, the, the Jews, that's the term, um, is, is used across, across the spectrum. That's not what we were called beforehand. Technically speaking, when we were in Egypt, we were Ivrim, Hebrews. And when we were afterwards, when we became the nation of Israel in the desert, we became Israelites. So the technical term for most of Tanakh is Israel, or the children of Israel, or Israelites. And the Jews only appear first actually in the Megillah's Esther. And the place we see it is when describing one of these people, and that's name, that man's name was Mordechai. Listen to what it says in Source 7. This is our introduction. We all read this passage out loud, God willing, tomorrow night. Ish Yehudi, Hayab Shushanabira. There was a Yehudi who came from Shushanabira. Shmar Mordechai ben Yoir ben Shimi ben Kish Ishimini. What does the word Ishimini mean? Right, Binyamin is Ishimini. He was a man from Binyamin. Right, just fascinating, by the way, in Tanakh, the, all the left hand swordsmen. We're all Binyamin, just the, even though the word Yamin is the right, just fascinating, whether it comes to Eud ben Gera, who is from Ishimini, whether it be the, 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 the bowsmen or the slingers in the times of Pelegish Begiva, just fascinating, fascinating note, Ishimini, that, 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 that one of their skills was left-handed um, 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 skills with weaponry. But let's look, let's look at the two, the, the two descriptions of Mordechai, the beginning and the end of the Pasuk. He's called an Ish, Yehudi, and he's called an Ishimini. And the Gemara already picks up on this, and it says, so which is he? Because the word Yehudi doesn't necessarily mean a Jew. The word Yehudi means... From the tribe of Yehuda. There were only two tribes who came to Babylon and Persia in, in, in exile. And they were Judeans and, and Benjaminites. So those are the only two who actually made it to Babel because the ten tribes beforehand were already exiled. So they are now living in Babel are two groups of people from the two sides of the family. Would you look at that? Right? So the Gemara says, who is he? So the Gemara has numerous interpretations in Megillah. Whether it means to say that it was, they were, the, the Shvatim were claiming to, to their credit or discredit Mordechai. Look what he did. Look what he saved. Right? Or maybe it's the Gomorrah says, no, maybe he came from both sides of the family. Maybe he had bloodline, bloodline from both the tribe of Yehuda and from the tribe of Binyamin. But we should not lose upon ourselves that he represents, two. he may be a Yehudi nationally, but he also may be a Benjaminite personally. So now, with that bearing that in mind, if Esther is related to him, which is very clear, 
as, as the Megillah make, makes the point. So she comes from the tribe of Binyamin. Now, Mordechai makes the plea bargain. And he says, listen, Esther, you've got, to, you've got to save us. You've got to do something when we get to Perek Dalit. He says, you've got, you've got to do something. You, you've got to advance our cause. You've got to advocate for us in, in, in front of the king. Listen to what he says. He says to her in, 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 in the source 8, Don't think you're going to escape, from, um, uh, escape in the king's house from among all the Yehudim, meaning the other side of the family, right? All the Judeans who might not be exactly culturally aligned to you, who are Jews, but nonetheless are not exactly you. If you will keep quiet, same words as Yaakov when he kept quiet, when the rape of Dina from the side of Leah happened in the family. There will be salvation for the rest of the nation of, of the Jews, or the Judeans, and you and your father's house, why is, he, why is he bringing your father in? Like, Esther, this is about you. Why is her father? What's Beis Avich? Binyamin. Beis right? Means to say, you and your father's house. If you think now is the time, if you think now is the time for revenge, you're doing the same kind of thing. Are you going to act like Yaakov Avinu, as the, perhaps the echo is, where he kept quiet at this point in time, when it was the side of Leah that was being hurt? If you're going to, re going to recreate that model, they're going to get saved elsewhere, but you're going to ultimately be destroyed. Meaning, don't think you can bring your collaborators, your friends, your side of the family into the palace and through, we'll call it federal exoneration, be able to save them and let everybody else go down the tubes. That's not going to work. Don't keep quiet. Don't, don't even give the hint of the same, we'll call it mistake. Not that Yaakov was making a mistake, but don't even feed into that kind of ideology. Now, the interesting thing is, is that Esther is, is really plagued by this. She's really troubled by this, which is why, if you think about it, when she makes her first request to the king to save the nation of Israel, which essentially is pleading, yes, she's pleading for the Benj Benjaminites, but she's really pleading that the, the greater total of the nation of Israel are really, at this point, Yehudim. She can find a way to save her family, an extension of family, and so on. She may be able to do that from her, because of her own, her own national interests. But when she comes in front of the king, what does she do? She borrows the words of Yehuda. When did Yehuda say those words? Yehuda said those words when? He was suggesting the sale of the other side of the family of the ben, ben Rachel into slavery. And remember, why is Yehuda doing that? Yehuda has in his mind all the negative resentment up till now. The fact that Yaakov treated this, this son special, uh, more special. He gave him the kisones past him. He kept quiet when it was their side of the family that was at stake. All these things are in the background of the memory of Yehuda. And he says, you know what? Well, let's not kill him. It's not worth killing him. But let's sell him. So Esther comes in front of the king. And now listen to the terrifying words that Esther was saying. Now we can perhaps understand what the, the, the very dark message that Esther is, is, uh, is uh, presenting in front of the king in source 3 again. Let's hear her words. This is her first and failed request. Please give me on my nation. Quoting Yehuda, we've been sold. That we've been sold to be killed. What's the next word? Mordechai said, don't keep quiet. She says, you know what? I could imagine the reality where if it was only being sold like my side of the family was only sold and not killed, I would have kept quiet. It wasn't worth it because you know what? That's what they did to us. They sold us down the river instead of killing us. I could live with that reality. But you know what? It's not being, it's not being sold. We're being killed. So therefore, I'll intercede. What's happening over here is the negativity of all those memories is coming back to Esther now. And yes, 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 I'm doing the right thing now, but you should know, O king, <laughs> that if the stakes were lower, I wouldn't be doing something because they didn't do this for us. That's what's ultimately happening. It's a very dark argument. That's why she's borrowing the same word as Yehuda. That's why she's using the same, the same actual mechanics and calculus as Yehuda, which is sale rather than death. She says, if it was sale rather than death, I would not be saving you. But I am saving you because it was death. And ultimately, when... A person is, 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 is plagued with negativity and, and resentment in such a way, it doesn't succeed. Right? The king isn't willing to listen to her. When you, when you hold, you know, Nelson Mandela used to say that, uh, that uh, resentment is like drinking poison and hoping that your enemy will die. Right? That's, that's what, that we, we hold on to all these things in our life, all this baggage, and we hope that it's going to make the whole world um, suffer because of us. And the only person who's really, really suffering is us. 
We carry around these terrible emotional backpacks for all, our, all of our lives. We don't let people go. And we ultimately, it ends up hurting us because we become a person who has this burden and we get the creases and the, and the scars of resentment. And the other people have moved on. Right? So Esther is stuck over here in this place. She's not able to let go of the history of She's stuck. And that's why she's not listened to. What happens is a transformation happens between Perik Zayn and Perik Ches, and she's able to release herself of that baggage. And what does she do? Now she quotes Yehuda, but she quotes him again. Where does she quote him? She quotes him when suddenly, now, the Leia side of the family has changed their perspective in the way they deal with the sides of, side of Rachel. Now we have Yehuda as a leader of the children of Leah, who has taken personal responsibility. In fact, the Chazal say so far is it wasn't just personal responsibility. He said that he was going to forfeit his life in this world and the world to come, which actually resonated in the fact that the Medrash points out that Yehuda was not able to get into Gan Eden all the 40 years in the desert. His bones are rattling in the coffin because of the statement that he made to represent and to advocate for his brother Binyamin. What happens is, is he says, um, I can't return to my father if my brother, even though he's not my blood brother, my direct brother is not found with me. Says Esther, when she quotes the second time in the successful plea bargain she makes to, to Achashverosh is, quoting Yehuda, not the Yehuda who suggested to sell her, her, her patriarchs and her scion, but rather the one who saved from sale. If you think about it, what happened at the end of Parshas Miketz? Let's go back to the, to the mechanics again. The same situation arises in a terrifying way. The Gevia is found in the backpack of Binyamin. The, the, the Mishnah Lamelech runs out and he says, he says, we're going to take him as a slave. And don't worry, we're not going to kill anybody. We'll just take him as a slave. At which point, Yehuda has another choice to make. It's only a slave after all, right? They're not, they're not killing him, right? So maybe we should just leave it, right? Just like we left Yosef to be a slave. And that's when Yehuda says these words. He says, no, no, I can't leave him even to be a slave. When Esther is able to resonate with that element of Yehuda, that's when she's able to plea and make the bargain of resolution to Achashverosh, and ultimately it succeeds. Which comes back to a very fascinating point, and that is, how memory works in general. This is such a profound point. Memory is not like a storage bank. You know, you, know, you can imagine like these old library, store, library storage rooms with these bookcases and you know, M, ME to MF is in that one. You put all the, the files in. You're like, I can't believe it. Why did I not put that memory into that filing cabinet? That's not the way memory works at all. Memory works also very similar to a, a web. And there's different hubs, so like if you imagine a flight map, you know when you always see those flight, uh, flight maps in Delta has Atlanta, and you know you have all these different places where the, the, where the flights are going around the world and all those curvy lines, and there's centers. Memory works through, through centers, and what happens is, is that sometimes in life, we can use one center as the focal point or as our hub, as opposed to another point. So as an example, so let's say this is, a, this is just a, 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 you know, we, we all experience this. You have a husband and wife, and, they, and, uh, and what happens is, is that she... Um, as an example, she loses the, the engagement ring that goes down the shower, okay? So, so now what happens is, is that, so now uh, the question is, is how is, that, is, is the husband going to relate to this 10 years down the line? There's some, there's some husbands will be like, and that ring which I scraped and, and worked for and I worked overtime to earn for and you just lost it down the drain, right? And forevermore that becomes the hub of memory. It becomes all memories, all future actions are seen through that moment, or if there are more intimate, more real moments of life where he was sick and she went out of the way, all the, whatever it is, that moment where she sacrificed on his behalf and he went on that trip which he really needed to go and she looked after the kids for that whole time and that becomes the hub of the memory, then yes, oh, there was the ring that disappeared. Okay. I'm saying like, yes, that, that's, that's that, 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 you know, yes, we'll get another one. It's an opportunity to renew our vows. And, right, we, we, it's a, we, can, we can now have a moment to, to rethink about things. Where do you choose as the focal point of memory? Through which is the prism of all the rest of your memory, which is the hub? And that's the question that Esther, Esther, Esther Amalka had at this point in time. Is how do I view the rest of the other, of the nation of Israel? Do I look at that time, do I hold on to the resentment at the beginning of that relationship, when they decided to set us down the river? Or, do I, or am, am I able to release that moment of memory and change the prism through which I view my brothers and sisters through a moment which is actually much more intimate, much more comforting, much more of a resilience? 
Sometimes a, in a relationship, there will be a terrible incident that happens in the beginning, but then somehow there'll be a, a bid for resolution, a bid for, uh, a bid for forgiveness. And if a person's willing enough to be able to, to intellectually, honestly, and emotionally accept that, they can allow that to become the new prism. But there's sometimes people can't let go. And they, even though the bid's been made and the other person extended themselves and Yehuda said, I won't go back to my father. Sometimes you can, in the national world called memory, you can't release the original memory of being sold. Can you release that or not? And that's uh, the struggle which Esther's being had in her own self. Kate, will she allow that resentment to overflow or will she be able to manage in, in her own to be able to come to the will called the bid for resolution? And if you think about it the same way, and there's, there's much more to talk about here, but just on the, on the opposite side, the same thing happens with, with Haman over here as well. Haman, of course, is, 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 a, is family, right? If you think about it. Haman is a descendant of Agag, who's a descendant of Amalek. Amalek, of course, is... Is is Esav? Esav's a brother, right? And unfortunately, uh, the best, the, you know, the worst that that a lot of us, uh, the worst of us, come come from ourselves, and um, and uh, the same kind of thing happens over there. On the one hand, there's also different moments in memory. You have the moment when Yaakov Avinu tricked his father Yitzchak and slipped into the bedroom to get the brachas and he was all dressed up and he had the fur on his hands and he pretended he was somebody he wasn't and he took these brachas and forevermore. Esav looked at that and said, this is the brother I'm going to kill. But, ironically speaking, there was a moment, there was a bid for resolution in that too. What happened is Yaakov you know, sent all these, all these gifts and parshas by Yishlach. And in fact, according to the Farshim, he was essentially opening up again. Let's, let, let's find a resolution. And there was a resolution. At that point in time, they said, Esav forgave him and he acceded that the brachas belonged to him, according to many, many of the Farshim, within that conversation. But the question is, is now down the line, which... Which becomes the hub of memory? Is it the original tricking or is, it the, or is it the resolution which is gained as well? The same question exists on Haman's side if you think about it on a national scale. And Haman cannot escape. Haman, unlike Esther, can never get to see the resolution as being the frontal prism of the relationship. He's never able to escape that resentment which, which, which always exists. And that's why the brothers continue to fight. As opposed to Esther's brothers who are not continuing to fight. Now, as it happens, it happens to be very funny because... All these, the, these conflicts, of course, there's much more to say in the Haman one. There's much, much more, but we don't have time right now. But if you think back to the, to the Haman thing for, for, and, the, and the Esther thing, where did all the conflict arise? It arise, arose between brothers. Well, isn't that fascinating? Because isn't that where the Yibum Chalitza episode occurs? It happens between brothers, right? And now you have a brother. Who's a, you have two brothers. You have one who disappears, one who is vulnerable now. And the question is, is are you going to allow them to be extinguished and erased in their legacy forever no, forever, forever, forever no longer or not? What is Esther ultimately doing? If you think about the, met the metaphor of what Esther is doing, is she saving the vulnerable brother? Isn't that fascinating? She's saving the vulnerable brother. She's now the person in power. Before it was Yehuda who was in power, and he had the right to say yes or no. And he waved that wand. Now Esther has the wand. Now she can make the difference, but she does save the brother. She essentially performs what's called this metaphoric yibum on the, on the brother who's out, the brother who's helpless. And that's what's happening with, with, with Haman as well. Haman, in his corrupted way of looking at it, is not able to see through the second prism of brotherhood. He's only left with the prism, uh, prism of, anta of antagonism at the beginning. He's not able to override that. Therefore, he thinks himself worthy of the chalitza. Right? He thinks himself worthy of leaving the brother on the side, in fact, involved in the actual genocide of that brother. But ultimately, the words flip around on himself. Who is that about the person who committed chalitza, who isn't willing to look after their brother? If that's a chafetz bikoro, he thinks it's korul befonov, but really, what is it? The yarku befonov. The yakar he wanted is really the yurika. The, the honor he wanted was really the spitting into his face because he thinks it's all right to leave brothers on the side of the road, but the hero win of the Megillah is the one who doesn't leave the brother on the side of the road. That's what's going on over here. There are two characters, the protagonist and antagonist, Esther and Haman, and they're looking at national history, which is informing their, their very actions. And this, by the way, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard to say sometimes, you know, was, you know, was Esther living every moment through Beratius? I don't know if it means to say, if it means to say every Benjaminite and every Jew, every Judean, it doesn't mean to say that, that, that's, that, that national pain was still there, or does it mean that there was another level in that society where there was splitting between Jews? Could we ever imagine that Jews were in different camps and sectarians? What I think there's being said over here is the same dichotomy, the same problem of memory, the same way of relating to others within our camp 
is existent in the Megillah, whether Aminos or Benjaminites or, Yehud, or Yehudim specifically, or in general, the same way today. We're still struggling with the same question. We can't forgive them. They did that to us. We can't forgive them. They see things that way. Or can we see that the fact that we all are going to be slated for, this, uh, for the same destruction? That's the question which is being investigated in Megillah. Let's take it, take, take it one step further just to appreciate this in, in, um, in full perspective. The only time, if we're thinking about brothers, if we're thinking about brothers, the only time the Megillah actually mentions brothers is, in fact, in the last Pasuk. And that is, is take a look at source 11. He was great for all the, the Yehudim. He was appeased. He was liked by most of his brothers. <laughs> That's the sign of a good Jewish leader, right? Most of his brothers. And he was good for all of his seed. The al Kodesh picks up on this. And by the way, when you, when, you, when you arrive at conclusions through intertextuality, this is our foreman's brilliant, brilliant insight, and there's much more. He has another three lectures on this topic. This is the one, the, 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 the smallest part of the inner circle of this. But um, when, you, when you unpack this, obviously you're going to meet friends along the way. It means that if, if, you, if you have a creative idea which, which is by itself, then you're probably not going to meet any friends. But if you're on the right track, you usually meet other Mephorosh who are saying similar things. Here's an example. The al Sheikh HaKadosh will close with this. He says in Source 12, What does the Pasuk say? He was the Mishneh. He was, the, he was this, uh, this courtier of the king of Ahasuerus. He was not the courtier of himself. He didn't consider himself so important. If he was focused on who he was serving, which is the king, this, 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 uh, this uh, um, Gentile king, he did not show any extra favor to those who he could have shown nepotism to. Who were those? Those from the tribe of? Binyamin, because that's where he came from. There were those in the nation. Who were the ones who didn't like him? The ones who felt that he wasn't showing enough favor because they were close enough. The cousins, the uncles, the aunts, the neighbors. They all felt, you know what? Mordechai. Now that you've got me, give us front seats at least in the convention, right? You know, allow us to have a pass to the palace, you know, when we want to visit the West Wing. Mordechai, do something for us. The Megillah emphasizes that ultimately he was only because some people still wanted to have divisiveness. They still wanted it to be Mordechai, it's us and them. But ultimately he was Dover Sholem, Lakol Saroy. Mordechai's agenda was bigger than the family. It was about the nation. And that's the resolution of the Megillah. What a remarkable insight. Again, further, a few further thoughts. Thank you very much, Rabbi. 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 Rabbi.